All right, everybody, welcome to the Rolling Thunder podcast brought to you by Welcome to Loud City. Ben Mertens here with J.D. Taylor, Clemente, and Trey Hunter. We are recording about 20 minutes before the start of the uh, Thunder Raptors game here on Sunday night. And uh, obviously, by the time this reaches your ears, loyal listeners, the game will have already happened. But we're going to preview it a little bit, and you're going to see exactly how uh, good at predictions and prognosis we are psychic is what you're going to say when you hear these predictions and it's exactly what happened in that game uh, we'll talk about the season as a whole the uh, state of the uh, the tank as things are going and uh, just some general thunder basketball stuff so um, guys this is a this is a key game tonight because the thunder are one and nine over their last 10 games they're actively uh as we know, actively not really trying to win. They made that press release that Al Horford wasn't going to play. They've taken Muscala out of the rotation. They released Justin Jackson, which maybe matters, maybe doesn't. They've been very, very cautious about uh, bringing guys like Shea Gilgis-Alexander back from injury or Lou Dort with his concussion. Darius Baisley, they finally brought back a few games ago after a pretty long absence. But the uh, Raptors, who are just uh, three games behind the Thunder, uh, in the overall win column or three games ahead, if you want to look at it that way, are going to rest, you know, no Fred Van Vliet, no Kyle Lowry, no Pascal Siakam, no OG Ananobi tonight. And the Raptors are the one team the Thunder have beaten over their last 10 games. So the Raptors are going all out to lose. Um, can the Thunder pull this one out, guys? And by pull out, I mean, can they lose this one and keep the, uh, keep the losing streak alive and keep moving up to the top of the lottery odds? don't think so today. I think with Toronto, I hate to say it because I, I want the Thunder to, I hate saying I want them to lose, but I want the Thunder <laughs> to, you know, I want the Raptors to win. I don't want the Thunder to lose. I want Cade Cunningham to play for the Thunder next year. Yeah, exactly. I want the Thunder to get a high draft peak. So obviously, yeah, but I just think that with Toronto's losses, and I think they've played something like nine games in the last 13 days. They've been ravaged by COVID and injuries and all this kind of stuff. They're in a really bad spot right now. And I think even with the Thunder's current roster talent and fluidity and just general sort of disorganisation at the moment, I reckon they can still beat Toronto, which is kind of worrying, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, they should be able to beat Toronto, but uh, I'm not sure that they will tonight. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Both teams are in tank mode. They're trying to lose this game. They're trying to figure out ways to lose this game. The Thunder will tell you they're still trying to figure out ways to develop players and stuff like that. But, I mean, they know what the bigger picture is right now. It's become obvious since the end of the All-Star break. You know, they've been mixing up these lineups. Guys have been sitting um, and things like that. But um, I think the overall goal, we know what it is going into tonight. And, honestly, I don't think the Thunder are going to win. I really don't. Yeah, I mean – I was, I was asking the same questions last game against the Pistons of whether or not they could be bad enough to lose the game, and it turned out that they were. It's looking like the Thunder's net rating is finally catching up to their record. I think they're like, they have the worst net rating and by a pretty wide margin. And for the longest, the Thunder were like hovering around 500, but like now in the second half of the season, their record's starting to plummet. And now you get to like see why they have like the 30th worst offense and defense in terms of net rating. Yeah, for a while they were. Uh outperforming their net rating because they were winning a bunch of close games. So they solved that by not being in close games anymore, though the Pistons game was pretty close down the stretch. And that was the Pistons started all three or three of their four, I should say rookies and the Thunder still uh, pulled out the L. So quite the performance. Everyone give me a, uh, since we're being psychic here, give me a score prediction and one, uh, one thing that's going to happen in this game tonight. I'm going to say 
The Raptors win 105 to 99. And uh, Baisley is going to score. Baisley's going to hit some threes tonight, finally, and he's going to score about 20 points with a couple threes in there. What do you guys think? Uh, I think I'll go with around, I don't want to say it, but I think Thunder will win 106 to 102. Poku's supposed to be back, and I expect him to have a big game. So you want to say 24 for Poku, 25, something like that? Is he playing? I thought he was out. Oh, he is. Okay, sweet. Oh, we're definitely, definitely, definitely losing there. Now, in the press conference earlier today, Coach Mark said that he's good to go and he anticipates he's going to play. Sweet. I'm going to go Raptors 110, Thunder 100, just totally a guess. But, um, and then something that'll happen tonight. Let's go with the Moses Brown double double, 20 points, 15 rebounds. Heck yeah. Uh, I think Raptors win by double digits. And if I had to guess something's going to happen this game, I would guess Nick Nurse gets a technical uh, one way or another. <laughs> That's a good one. All right, so um, we've got some some news to catch up on besides the Thunder's uh, fall down the standings. So, as mentioned, uh, Poku is playing tonight, but we have some news that Shea Gilgis-Alexander is going to miss some more time. Um, what's what's the update on that? How much time is it supposed to be, or when's he going to be reevaluated? I guess is that the phrasing. Uh, when he while I was there under pressers, from what he said was that SGA was a bit behind in terms of his uh, timetable. And they we're going to uh, reevaluate him two weeks from now, which would probably be like around the end of April. And by then, there would only be like a couple weeks left in the season. Wink, wink. Yeah, yeah. so let's go ahead and say that Shea's probably going to miss the rest of the season. That's just my prediction anyway. I mean, well, why would they throw – my question is, at some point they decided – uh, that they needed to evaluate this injury. It was tough enough. It was hard enough on him that they needed to sit him. And then they decided, do we need to sit him long-term to kind of work in with this tank mode to kind of lose some games and stuff. And I want to know when that, when that happened and was it around the all-star break at that time when they were outperforming, you know, their net rating, like you guys said. And at that time, did they kind of decide, you know, or did they wonder if this injury, if this injury to Shea was going to be something long-term or did they actually think maybe he was only going to miss a couple weeks? I don't know. I, I, I just think he's out for the rest of the season. I, it doesn't make sense to bring him back if this is the, if this is the route they're going. And I would be surprised if they did. Yeah. I think the reason it's, they didn't just announce he was done for the season, but they've kind of piecemealed, like we're going to reevaluate him, him and now he's behind the timeline is, um, there's been starting to be noise on um, the internet that uh, what the Thunder are doing is uh, pretty nakedly <laughs> tanking to the point that like, you know, 76ers fans are saying, you know, why did, uh, why did Sam Hinkie get forced out back in the day for the process? <laughs> what the Thunder are doing is the same thing, which I think the two reasons, the Thunder don't play on national TV ever this season and they're not in the ma- national market. So it's flown more under the radar. And the second thing is they're doing it for half a season, not three years, right? It took about three years for the process to really catch the ire of the NBA. But they are correct that what the Thunder are doing is blatant, even by NBA standards, in terms of just announcing, yeah, Horford's healthy, but uh, we're just not going to play him anymore. Um, And so I think to kind of maintain some, uh, let's say, plausible deniability around the whole thing, it's we're not saying Shea's out for the season, we're going to keep evaluating him. But I'd be shocked if at any point the evaluation has 
he's ready to come back because there's there's nothing to play for from Shea's perspective. The thunder of what they're playing for is, you know, these young guys, and Shea's a young guy too, but these really young guys, these Maladons, um, these Pokus, these guys like Beck who we're bringing over from overseas, there's a chance for them to prove that they're NBA players, which is good. And then from the Thunder, you know, team organizational five-year plan perspective, it's lose these games and up the draft back. So I, I too would be shocked if Shea played another game this season. I think another thing is that uh, the Thunder historically always prioritize their star players' health. I mean, we saw with Durant was Jones fracture, Westbrook was meniscus. And uh, plantar fasciitis, from what I've seen online, is that it's one of those injuries where uh, nobody really knows how it starts and nobody really knows how it ends. It's more of a case-by-case type of thing. And I think the Thunder are also want to like not risk uh, SGA re-aggravating it when he comes back during games that really don't mean much in the long term. I agree. I also just kind of think it's the case, this happened with the Warriors as well last year, is that a player will get an injury and the most cautious timeline is named, so say four weeks. And in the case of Steph Curry's hand injury that he had last year, he was named for eight weeks. He ended up missing about three months in the end. I think if you just tack on these extra weeks of just saying that he'll, he'll be out, that's what, six games, two weeks, there or thereabouts. That can make all the difference in the lottery standings. And Golden State knew that last year. This seems to be what the Thunder know this season. And nobody can really question it. Because if a player's out injured, it's not just being oh, rest because he's old. And you won't get a fine because of that, because there's a valid reason. And I think Sam Preston knows exactly what he's doing. And he's trying to get the Thunder to get a high draft pick or as high draft pick as possible. Yeah, I mean... He, he knows what he's doing. He, if Al Horford's not playing, they're trying to lose games. I mean, that's just plain and simple, as easy as it gets. He's healthy. He's fine. There's, his contract probably wasn't movable this year as opposed to probably next year. Um, so they're them deciding, mutually deciding for him to sit the rest of the season. I mean, that's pretty obvious. And, it's pretty, and like uh, Mark Dagnall said, when it happened, it's a really unique situation, which Ben, you brought it up. You brought up Sam Hinkie and the 76ers. Um, this is obviously pretty different from that. I can't remember. Maybe it happened back then, but I'm not sure. Did the 76ers sit people during their, during that time when they were losing games on purpose or when they were setting up stuff like that, did they have a guy like Al Horford where they basically went to him and said, Hey, uh, we're going to sit the rest of the season and kind of play this out and see what happens. I'm not sure. I don't think it did happen like that but I think that's why it makes this situation really unique and I know they're trying to set themselves up for one of these top picks but you know like you said Ben that process was three four or five years however long it was I, I, I get the feeling that maybe this Thunder fan base feels like this process is going to be a lot shorter than that but I mean all signs point to, the, to this being a long-term deal I mean Shea, Shea is a cornerstone there's definitely something to build around there but I think teams that the Thunder have put out there in the past, the Durant years with KD and Westbrook, and then they had to pair Westbrook up with Paul George, this is not anywhere close to a complete product. I think they see something that they have and they can build around, but I think this is going to be a process much like the 76ers. And maybe Presti just kind of feels his way out being in a small market, and this team has never really lost over the last 10 years, you know, I think, I don't think it's just going to be a two year turnaround. I think they're going to build around Shea and we're going to kind of see them tinker and maybe do some things that are unique like this Al Horford situation to where they do have a complete product 
and they can go out and put guys around Shea and Lou Dort and guys like that. Yeah, I'll say what's kind of different from – there's a few things that are different from the 76ers in the process um, back then. So one is the 76ers traded everybody who was any good, and they got back picks. When the Thunder traded Paul George and Russell Westbrook, they mostly got back picks, but they also got back Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's better than anyone who was on those 76ers teams the three years that they were uh, really and truly tanking. And the 76ers did all sorts of things to kind of extend the tank, right? They drafted Michael Carter-Williams, and he won Rookie of the Year. But Hinky, to his correctly, as it turned out, recognized that like Carter Williams winning Rookie of the Year didn't exact wasn't a harbinger of him winning you know All Stars or All NBA nods because Michael Carter Williams ended up being a pretty average NBA player. So he traded him right after winning Rookie of the Year. He drafted Joel Embiid when they knew Embiid wasn't going to play, which again was the correct pick, but it also ensured that the 76ers were going to be bad uh, for more than just one or two seasons. So I think why the Thunder's version of what the process could be shorter than what the 76ers was is they already have Shea Gilders Alexander in the door. They already have one building block, whereas the Sixers needed to uh, get a bad pick several years in a row before they got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Cause you really need at least, at least two really good players like that. And the sixth, uh, the Thunder, excuse me, already have one in Shea. And if the lottery breaks the right way, they could have two top five picks this coming season. So then maybe next year they miss the playoffs again, but they're better than this year. And then I could two years from now, I hundred percent could see them already back in the playoffs with, their version of the core ready to go. And the other thing too, is they have all these picks who they could trade for a player, which the Sixers accumulate all those picks, but there was no point to trading for a player already in the league because they didn't have a good player to pair him with. Right. Embiid missed his first like two seasons in the league with injury. Then they drafted Simmons. Um, and then they just had the two guys. We already have the first guy. We could conceivably draft guy number two, whether that's Cade Cunningham or Jonathan Kaminga, whoever this year. And then we still have the Clippers picks, the Rockets picks in the future, the like scattered Suns and Nuggets picks. That's the kind of thing you could swap for, you know, whatever player becomes disgruntled with his current situation, asks for a trade. And then, then the Thunder have their big three. So I think there are elements of it that are similar to the 76ers in the process. And the thing like it, uh, telling Al Horford just to not play anymore is a very processy 76ers move. But I think the Thunder are going to be out of it a lot faster than the Sixers were just because they're starting ahead of where the Sixers were because the Sixers didn't have anybody close to Shea Gilgis-Alexander than the Thunder do. Um, so I do think that is what the difference is there and why the Thunder's version of the process might be a lot quicker than the 76ers was. But uh, that's enough on players who are, who are not playing anymore this year. Let's talk a little bit about the guys who are actually still on the court for the Thunder. I want to talk a little bit about Darius Baisley, just came back from injury four games ago. Um, and those four games... As he came back, he's averaging 16 points and six uh, rebounds to assess per game. He's shooting 47% overall from the field, just 22% from three on about five attempts a game. So the three-point shot is still dreadful. But his true shooting is about 53% because he's actually been pretty good on his twos. That's higher than his career true shooting percentage. And I thought he's, he's looked pretty good uh, getting to the rim, uh, which is kind of impressive because at times – either Baisley or Dort have been the centerpiece of the offense for the most part in these games. And there was one game that Dort didn't play and was just Baisley. So I thought he hasn't looked, hasn't looked half bad um, since coming back from injury. The three ball still just is not falling for him, but he's as the focal point of the offense. Um, he hasn't been too bad. What have you guys kind of thought about these four games from Baisley? I think he's played really well. I think he's been, the key thing I've noticed within these last four games has really stood out to me is that he's being aggressive with his shot He's going to the rim, and when he goes to the rim, he's not trying to avoid contact and just slip a layup in. He's going up to dunk it or finish through contact. And he seems to be trusting himself a lot more. Like, he's got a bit of his rhythm back. 
And I also like to see from Baisley that he's still not, he's not afraid of taking the three. He's not afraid of just trusting himself and letting it fly because eventually they will drop. I think Baisley's mechanics are pretty good. I think that he's probably a better shooter than what he actually is or what his numbers show. And I like the fact he's trusting himself. I think this next sort of 15 games, if Shea sits out for the rest of the season, will be very interesting to see if Darius Baisley can function as a lead offensive option for the Thunder. It's not something we've ever really seen him do, but it's will give a good idea into what his ideal role will be on the Thunder, you know, say going forward. Is he going to be, let's say, a very poor man's version of Lamar Odom? Or is he going to be something a bit higher than that? It will be very interesting to see how this plays out, I would say. Yeah, I think these uh, these last 15 games are basically very crucial in terms of like where to find or see him in the long run. Because going to the draft, they could, they could end up with two high picks and all of a sudden it basically is probably like bottom of the uh, totem pole when it comes to like prioritizing the young core. So these last 15 games are going to be a big deal for Baisley. Um, but, yeah, he's been playing really well. Uh, he's been scoring the ball a lot better. Um, but, yeah, that's what I think so far with Baisley. Now, what I've seen from him, and honestly, I saw it from him before the injury, is confidence. I feel like the guy's one of the more confident players on the team as far as getting a shot and just playing. And, you know, the, as the game flows, you, you, you just never see him down. You never see him back off or things like that. Another thing that kind of stuck out to me when we heard what the actual injury was, a fractured scalpula, and he only missed a month. I can't believe that. So, you know, I was pretty impressed with, <laughs> with that and how he can come back and play 30 minutes in an NBA game right off an injury like that. So, but no, he, he's looking good. Like, like Clemente said, these last few games are going to be real interesting to see where he fits, um, especially without Shea out there and probably without Lou here in a few games or something like that. Um, and I'm also kind of interested over these last few weeks, going back to that situation we just finished talking about, what he can learn from Al or Horford, uh, even without Horford out there or with Horford just at practice or just at home games, um, just kind of filling out and where he can build off of that. But, no, he's looked good. He's looked confident. That's the main thing. Yeah, the confidence, the same thing as Dort, right? Dort last year, the three-point shot was never going down except in game seven against the Rockets, but he always was uh... – confident about taking them as the same thing with basically the percentage is bad but uh to jd's point his form looks fine to me um and he's he's not hasn't been scared off he's averaging over five per game since coming back from the injury which is quite a lot for a guy shooting 22 percent um and i think the three the three ball is important right if the three point shot never really comes around for him it's hard for me to see him as a starter on this team just because you're going to want spacing around your shea gilders alexander and whatever uh, other players coming to join him in the draft like Dort has gotten to just below average but like barely below average and his defense is so good that that keeps him on the court Baisley's not that level of defender so I think to be a starter the three ball needs to come around but if it doesn't come around but he's consistently getting better at finishing at the rim like we JD and I were talking about then there's a role for him as a bench unit guy we kind of saw that the first half of the season with Hamadou Diallo Hamadou Diallo still cannot hit a three-pointer to save his life but on a second unit, you need someone who can kind of create offense. And if Baisley is consistently getting better at finishing at the rim and is able to create shots at the rim right by catching the perimeter and just driving and going, that's a valuable piece on the second unit. So I do think as long as his and his, uh, uh, his two-point finishing did not look as good pre-injury as it has these last few games. So if that keeps up, he's certainly playing his way into at least a, a role in the team. And if the three ball comes around too, you know, then you've got a guy who's a 
decent defender because of his athleticism can hit the three and can sometimes put the ball in the deck. That's a really nice player. So I, I agree. These last 15 games, we're going to learn a lot about Darius Baisley because there's just not many other guys left to take shots. And that should tell us a lot about what he's going to be, what role he's going to play on the team next year. And if he's going to be on the team, you know, three, four years from now when they're hopefully competing for titles. So we're going to learn a lot about him in these next few games. Um, the other guy I want to talk a little bit about was, was Lou Dort playing more and more point guard over these last few games. Um, really since she went out, even though we have guys like Maladon who's been starting and Ty Jerome coming off the bench, they're asking Lou Dort to be the one to bring the ball up the court, initiate the offense a lot. Um, just what have you guys thought about him in that role and just general, general Lou Dort thoughts over these last few games? Well, I covered the game against Utah where he scored 42 and, you know, he was just superb. I think he's just been like that all season, both sides of the ball, just drawing those offensive fouls like no other. Um, and then playing on the ball, you know, without Shea, he looked he looked pretty good that night. Um, 31 shots. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, he's aggressive. That's all you can ask from him right now, you know, uh, do what you can with the ball. I know Teo's out there with him a lot, but um, I like what I, – I do like what Dagnall's doing kind of, you know, tinkering with things and figuring out how he fits in the offense without Shea out there or, you know, with different lineups, uh, could we run the, could we run things through him? So, but no, just covering that 42 point game, not only the offense, but the defensive side of the ball to, you know, the guy's so impressive. You got to keep, he's definitely a part of the long-term future. And I think he's established that over the last few games. I think it's very interesting with Lou. I think as a point guard from what I've seen over the last, say, five, six games, is that he looks relatively comfortable being a point guard and he does make the right read here and there. He's got to learn, he's got to develop his court vision so he become a bit better at finding the more advanced reads. So sort of, like I said, like a cross-court pass, he's still not perfect on that. And his passing accuracy could do with a little bit more work because he's quite turnover-prone at the moment. And it can look a little bit ugly at times, but you can see where the development and where the growth is going to come. And there is definitely something there to work with, I would say. I think with Dort, if he can sort of, I don't use Marcus Smart as an example, but if he can develop that sort of playmaking where he can keep things ticking over, get, say, three or four assists a night, while having amazing defence and being able to knock down, you know, three-point shots at a fairly decent rate, we're talking about a player who's seeding jumps massively from just solely being a three and D guy who gets paid say $15 million a year or $12 million a year to be, you know, someone who gets paid 18, $19 million a year. Like I think that door could be, you know, a decent ball handler, but we've just got to give him time over the next 15 games and see what he can do. I think he's capable of it, but it's time for him to prove it. Yeah, I think the has really made some of these games watchable just by himself. <laughs> um, <laughs> What a what a find for the Thunder, man. Like, one year into the rebuild, or two years if you count last year, and they already found two for-sure starters for the next contending team without even using single one of their picks in SGA and Dort. So uh, it's just a, a great find by Presti. And, uh, yeah, so that's what I think. Yeah, I have a weird kind of comparison because they're not similar players. Um, but Zach Levine's rookie year in Minnesota, they used him as a point guard because they didn't really have a choice, and he wasn't good at it. Um, 
he just isn't that he's, he'll never be a full-time point guard, but the experience of playing a lot of point guard did like improve him as a passer. So like now you see Zach Levine, he's not the point guard on the bulls. He's the shooting guard, but he does average like five or six assists a game. And he's gotten better and better at reading the game every year. Um, and I think those getting all those reps and getting the chance to play point guard on a team that wasn't going anywhere kind of helped that development along. And Lou Dort isn't anything like Zach Levine as a player on offense and Zach Levine is nothing like Lou Dort on defense, uh, to be clear. But the, the principle, I think, is the same. These games where the Thunder aren't really going anywhere the rest of the season, it makes sense to try him out in a role that he hasn't really had to try before. And if he he'll never, he might never make it to the point where he's a point guard, but you already have Shea Gilders Alexander and you might end up with Gabe Cunningham if everything goes right at the lottery. So if you have a guy who can just make the right reads as a secondary, even tertiary ball handler, that's a really nice thing to have to go along with his defense. Um, and the three point shot, if he gets that up to average or even just to the point to jump on the Marcus smart comparison, actually Marcus smart, even when he was bad at being a three point shooter, because he was guard size, when he would pump fake on threes, guys would bite on it. And then he would drive into the lane and make the right pass. If Dort can get guys scared enough of his three that the pump fake and drive game opens up and then he's making solid enough reads, that's a really, really valuable player to have. That's a role player who's more than a three and D player, which is what you need at the highest, highest levels to win. Um, so I think these point guard minutes are all positive. And I've been, I've been decently impressed. I, he doesn't look like a point guard. He doesn't maneuver like a point guard, but he generally does make the right read. If the obvious read, um, he's not making any like draw dropping Rajon Rondo, Chris Paul passes, but he doesn't need to on this team, right? The Thunder are running a relatively simple offense. So when Dort's the one making the reads, he's avoiding egregious mistakes, which is pretty impressive for an undrafted guy in his second year who doesn't play the point guard position. So I think it's all good stuff. You guys got uh, anything else you want to add in or should we head over and watch this Raptors game? I mean, you brought up a good point there at the end about how these last, this last half of the season is a good practice for Ludor to develop some skills that could be useful for whenever the funders start contending again. That's something that people really don't consider when you bring up just how like offensive uh, and competent like guys like Roberson and Tabu were because they never really had the chance to, like, you know, try mm-hmm. stuff out because they were on teams that need to win now. Good point. How many games do you guys think the Thunder end up winning? How many have they? Okay, so so far they've won 20, and they have 16 to go. And so I'm looking I'm gonna, at the schedule now. They got Sacramento three times. We're going to win at least one of those. <laughs> uh, Washington twice, New Orleans, and a couple games against Golden State. Um, I'm going to say They'll win four more, so they'll finish 24 and – what's that, 24 and 48? Yeah. I'm going to say three, I think. I think Washington are on the warpath. Russell is leading them to the play-in somehow, some way. Uh, Russell Westbrook was built for the play-in game. Like, that's the type of thing. I can get us – this team might not be very good, but I can drag us to the 10 seed. Russell Westbrook was built for that. I mean, yeah, and I think Curry's doing the same with the Warriors. Sacramento are actually probably a bit better than what people think. I think their record is kind of hiding the quality that De'Aaron Fox has played with. So I'd say three games. Uh, I think with the Kings, the one thing to consider is by the time we play a couple of those games, the Kings might have thrown in the towel too. And like De'Aaron Fox might not play those games. Right. Yeah, I was thinking like probably 25 at the most. It really depends on like what Utah and LA do at the end there. They're, they were probably going to be resting their guys if uh, they knew That's who they going to end up playing. All right, so I'm going to set the over-under at four, and I'm just going to take the over. All right. Yeah, so if that happens, 
let's look. So where do you guys think they're going to finish lottery wise? So if they, if they won four more games, Orlando currently has 18 wins. Detroit has 17. Minnesota has 15. Houston has 14. I think they've, they won four more games the rest of the season. They'd at least finish Orlando would finish with a better record than them. Maybe Detroit, but I'd say they finish with the, the fourth worst record and therefore the fourth best lottery odds. Well, not the fourth best lottery. The top three teams have the same lottery odds. Right? Yeah, we're fourth. We have slight. You're right. It's a tie for first three way, and then we'd be just behind. It's a minuscule difference. It's a 14 percent chance at the top pick if you're top three, and then fourth place is a 12.5 percent. Right. So they're just trying to get in. They're just trying to get one of the worst three records, and they don't yeah. have to have the worst record. They just want to get to the top three. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's going to be an interesting run here down the stretch to see if those teams, because you know. They got they're playing the same game the Thunder are right now. So it's just going to be interesting to see what happens down the stretch. Not just OKC, but those bottom teams in the in the standings. Who's disciplined enough to keep losing? Yes. Who can keep it up? Who can keep it up? Yeah, I think it'll be third. Because if you look at the strength of schedule, uh, Orlando are currently on 15th, which means they've got a relatively middle-of-the-road schedule, whereas the Thunder are 11th. Uh, but Orlando still have to play. Houston, which is is a win for them because Houston are just terrible. Uh, Minnesota, that's a win for them because because they're terrible. And Detroit, like if Detroit do what they did last time, where they just keep you know leaving people out, Orlando, I expect them to win that. So I reckon they'll probably pass the Thunder, and hopefully OKC get into the third seed. That's the plan. I mean, we were talking about it before the pod. I mean, Houston and Minnesota, it's pretty unrealistic that they catch up to them. But Detroit, I mean, they're only three and a half back. They got around 15 games to go. So I think it would be safe to assume that they finish with like a top five or bottom five worst record. All right. On that happy note, I think we will wrap up the show for today. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks, everyone out there for listening. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys.